Hello and welcome again to Murderland Chicago, a deep dish of death. My name is Jonathan Sanchez Leos and I'm here today again with Meredith Halsey. Today we're talking about Brian Dugan who killed at least three people in West Suburban Chicago in the 1980s. Dugan's crimes were made possible in part by the collapse of blue-collar job opportunities alongside the simultaneous population growth of Latinos to the area. This combination of factors helped Dugan to fly under the radar while xenophobia and racism focused the fear and blame on two innocent men, which resulted in decades of false imprisonment and the preventable rape and murder of at least two more of Dugan's victims. For those who might need them, Content trigger warnings for this episode include the rape and murder of children and women, extreme cruelty to animals, wrongful convictions, and the death penalty. All right, so let's start with the beginning. Brian Dugan was born in New Hampshire in 1956. Now, there's a lot of family lore, and not all of it is corroborated, but we're going to go with the family lore and what we what we know, what we think we, we know to the best of our, our research. So according to family lore, Dugan's mother went into labor at home, but the baby decided to come out before the doctor arrived. However, a nurse was already at the home, but instead of helping to deliver the child, the nurse actually pushed the crowning baby back inside his mother's body, then strapped the mom's legs together to wait for the doctor. Now, obviously this is beyond awful, but we should also note that we're not sure how truthful this story is and that the story has been refuted by Dugan himself. Beyond that, family lore also indicates that as an infant, Dugan would bang his head against the crib and that he needed medication for severe headaches until his teen years. Could this have been related to a traumatic birth or potentially other abuse? We know that both parents were alcoholics and that all the children in the Dugan household later spoke out about the abuse they suffered as children, including being forced to sleep in their soiled bedsheets as punishment for wetting the bed, being force-fed hot sauce, being whipped, and being forced to hold matches until the children's fingers were burned. All of this is terrible. Jonathan, I don't know about you, but... Yeah, I got slapped around as a kid, but no matches, no force feeding. Yeah, the the stories that come out from the Dugan household really sound atrocious. Uh, adding to this one, of course, as you very well know, there was also an allegation that Dugan set fire to the family cat um, and that he did this purposely. So when we're looking at that trifecta, of uh, serial killers uh, and you know the ingredients necessary to make one bedwetting obviously like you said before you know that was the punishment that they all received for wetting the bed and Brian Dugan was according to family lore a, a habitual bedwetter uh, mm-hmm. cruelty to animals you know obviously the burning of the family cat and you know all of this makes for the perfect recipe for a serial killer but like you said before brian dugan who we can talk about a little bit later but both you and i have had the uh dubious privilege of talking to him directly uh while he was in prison and we will be talking a little bit more about that later but he directly um is uh contesting those claims and says that those never happen but again you know we we don't know what to believe in this instance but suffice it to say something did happen because brian dugan did not come out 
uh, the uh, the most what's what's the expression I'm looking for here? Well adjusted. There you go. He did not come out the most well adjusted individual. We have all these words for. <laughs> pathology uh but i forgot the one word which is when you don't have any pathologies well adjusted yes all right we'll fast forward about 11 years so in 1967 brian is 11 years old and the dugan family moves from new hampshire to a place called lyle illinois so (laughs) what's lyle Lyle is a small commuter suburb located due west of Chicago. It's next to Naperville, but it's slightly less affluent than Naperville. Now today, Lyle is a destination suburb for people who switched to working from home during the pandemic, and they maybe are looking for a little bit more space and a yard, and they still want to access downtown Chicago. But even back then in the 60s, it was a popular area for middle-class commuters, and back then, Lyle was still solidly middle class. It has had and has good schools and lots of job opportunities in the surrounding areas. Residents of Lyle can access downtown Chicago via the Metro, which is our local commuter rail, or I-88 and 290. If there is no traffic, and Jonathan, you know that there is never no traffic. Never. Assuming no traffic, a 30-minute drive to downtown Chicago. I can say I have been to Lyle once in my entire life. It was to visit the Morton Arboretum. And my recollection of that ride was at least an hour. Oh, yeah. I I had a boyfriend in Lyle. And I remember driving out there and thinking that it was just like on the other side of the world. And when I saw it on the map and realized it was like only 20 miles outside of Chicago, I was like, I thought I was in St. Louis, basically, because it just felt forever away. It's a different world. Yeah. It truly is. I was surprised to learn when I was looking up a little, uh, some Lyle facts, that this town has some corporate headquarters of mid-sized businesses Mm -hmm. who want to be close to Chicago, but they don't want to pay Chicago rent. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And ethnically speaking, Lyle in the 60s is pretty similar to Lyle today. A lot of Polish and Italian and Irish and German heritage. Yeah, I think when I hear Lyle, the two things I think of are white and not as rich as Naperville. They, they're probably like blue-collar Democrats, right? You're not far enough yet to be like completely red, but they're probably kind of a manager somewhere. Um, you know, they, they probably have the... 2.3 kids and yes. the garage, etc. Those are all kind of the things you think of when you think of Lyle. Exactly. All right. So moving a little bit, a tiny little bit forward in time. So the Dugan family moves to Illinois. They land in Lyle. And we know that Dugan is being raised in an abusive household. But we also know um, that they're doing okay, economically speaking, because they went to Lyle. Then the Last thing that we know here is that this family moves to Aurora, which is a little bit further west. And a little bit more real. A little bit more real, but that's actually, we know that as being a more real suburb today because of part of what we're going to talk about. Mm -hmm. So at the time, we're talking very late 60s, very early 70s, Aurora is doing great. Aurora has all the manufacturing jobs. Oh, yeah. If you get your high school diploma and you're in Aurora, you're set. Get a job. 
It's fine. You mm-hmm. can, like, if you want to have a baby when you're 20, go do it. You can afford that. <laughs> we know that at somewhere between 67 and 72, 73, the Dugan family moves to Aurora because du- Brian Dugan is attending high school in Aurora when he drops out at age 15, around 1972, 73. I, I couldn't uh, verify exactly when in the school year. All right, so he's a 15-year-old dropout, which means he's probably not qualified for these manufacturing jobs. Yeah. He's too young. He doesn't have that high school diploma. And I think we all forget that back then in the 70s, having your high school diploma meant something, right? Yes. It wasn't like today where it's just kind of a given that you can just basically fall asleep in class and you know, you'll know you walk out with a piece of paper that says you graduated. Back then, graduating with a high school diploma, especially in Chicago, was this very you know momentous occasion because it meant that you were being prepared for one of the many industry jobs that existed in factories um and i think we all knew people in our families especially extended family members who worked in factories um and were very proud of the fact that they graduated from high school and i even remember that being a tenant that family members would say to me in high school well if you want to get a good job you have to graduate from high school it was never even posited like oh go to college (laughs) yes exactly that was a dream too far (laughs) exactly it was like get your high school diploma and then your parents will have considered that they did a good job with you yeah i was the same way the only reason i went to college is because i watched too many sitcoms and the kids in the sitcoms went to college oh 100 i i feel like the only reason i went to college was because of felicity nice and i wanted two boys to fall in love with me right like that yeah <laughs> otherwise at least within my immediate vicinity people did not go to college or if they went they went for like one year and then dropped out uh, yeah and then told you oh college was yeah it's not really worth it right 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 because they had a bad experience exactly yeah the place they went wasn't right for them yeah yeah All right, so here we are. It's the early 70s. Aurora still has lots of jobs. They are manufacturing jobs. It is blue collar, but it is still a good quality of life. You can can thrive in Aurora. But Dugan has dropped out. He can't, he's already cut off from that path of thriving. He's got a history of abuse and he's 15. And what 15 year old isn't pissed off about anything, right? And this is when Dugan starts getting caught committing burglary doing drugs, and committing theft. And it's the first time that he gets caught trying to kidnap a 10-year-old girl. Obviously, it was just trying. The girl got away, but this happened at a Lyle train station. Now we get to the early 1980s. This is Chicagoland as depicted in the Blues Brothers. This is suburban malls. This is Illinois Nazis. This is a bunch of really boxy, ugly cars. Importantly, Ronald Reagan is the president and he is loving laissez-faire economics. Remember this. American manufacturing basically evaporates overnight. All of a sudden, all the best stuff is being made in Japan. Mm -hmm. And unemployment skyrockets in Aurora, specifically. And really creates the Aurora that we know and don't love today. Exactly. Because you and I, we were growing up in the 80s, and Aurora is this place where you can't get a job, and there's a bunch of crime because all of a sudden there's there's no work. We've we've lived through this again in the pandemic. Yeah. Closer to home, in 1983 specifically, Harold Washington becomes Chicago's first black mayor. 
Return of the Jedi tops the box office, and Mike Ditka enters his second season as the Bears coach, heading towards fame and fortune. Parts of Chicagoland, including Aurora, are also experiencing a lot of Latino population growth at this time. And because Aurora had been just another German, Polish, Italian, Irish, blah, blah, blah type of white mix, this leads to a bunch of xenophobia. Yeah, and if I can add, this is when my family comes to Chicago. And uh, one of the reasons why is because simultaneous to this, there is widespread economic depression across Latin America, but especially in Mexico, because of the fact that Mexico was going through an economic recession after defaulting on their IMF loans. So the peso was devalued to like an insane amount. And a huge amount of Mexican families, mine included, came to the Chicagoland area looking for jobs because there was nothing in Mexico. And the middle class in Mexico was basically just completely erased within just a drop of a hat. So your family came in the 80s. Yeah, yeah. Got it. And they came specifically for this reason because of the jobs. Because yeah. at that time, you know, in Mexico, it, it, you, you see this across the board in Chicago that a lot of Mexican families came, that wave of immigration came in the 80s. So Chicago, for those of you that don't know, is about 40% Latino. And of that 40%, the vast majority are Mexican. Many of those individuals came to Chicago in the 80s following this economic recession that happened in Mexico. And so my family is part of that. And we we moved to Joliet, which similarly to Aurora was also a city that had and we'll we'll do a whole other conversation about Joliet. Awesome. <laughs> what Joliet means. Yeah. Uh, but you know, Joliet like Aurora, industrial city that in the eighties, you know, bottom falls out, Reaganomics is here to stay, and you know, these these really secure union jobs are evaporating and in their place uh, there are these jobs that are highly volatile, not paid very well, but that because a lot of immigrants are fleeing situations that are much worse than what they're you know, facing in Chicago, are taking these jobs just to survive and keep their families afloat. And this is the Chicagoland where Dugan went on a spree of abductions, rapes, and murders throughout the western suburbs and where innocent Latino men were blamed and convicted for at least one of those attacks while Dugan continued to terrorize the community with impunity. Yeah. And so uh, we'll start on the timeline here. Because of this, the, the huge implications of the story, we are planning on doing this as a two-parter. Uh, two parts! Two-part special! <laughs> uh, basically because th this story, like we said before, and the reason why we're doing this podcast is because we are not talking about these murders within a vacuum. We're talking about them as they relate to these larger social issues, how they are reflections of what is concurrently happening in Chicago at that time. And as Meredith, you know, very, very well put forward, you know, this is this is a very different Chicago and Brian Dugan is operating within a social structure that is allowing him to be able to act with impunity. Had he been operating in any other decade, you, it's, it, I would I would doubt that he would have been as successful as he was able to. But because of this huge yeah. transition that's happening as a result of the, the ethnic demographics of the Chicagoland area at the time and the economic changes, he is able to get away with it. So going back to the very beginning, if we're going through his crimes, 
The first one that we have on record, February 25th, 1983, Dugan kidnaps a 10-year-old girl from her home in Naperville, rapes and kills her. And this is Naperville. This is the the well-to-do then and still well-to-do enclave of white wealth now. Terrifying. She was homesick. They let her be home alone because she's 10 and she's got a cold. It's no big deal. And then this happens. Yeah, and I think that we all in Chicago remember the picture of Janine because this was huge news. Naperville was a um, you know, a well-to-do community. Things like this did not happen in Naperville. You moved to Naperville to avoid these things because the story was that these things happened all the time in Chicago. So for this to happen, it was definitely a a rupture of that social contract of trust that people bought into by moving to the suburbs. Police needed to find somebody right away. The pressure was on. And on March 9th, 1984, they indict three men for Janine's murder. Those men were Rolando Cruz, Alejandro Hernandez, and Stephen Buckley. At this time, these men are under suspicion and being arrested. Dugan remains free and continues to attack girls and women. Yeah. And, you know, like you said, this they were under such pressure because of where this was that they, if you just look at the dates, February 25th to March 9th, you know, the vast majority of murders in Chicago go unsolved. And they were able to successfully indict three men within the course of 10 days, showing that the pressure from the public to find someone to blame for this was, was huge. And like we said, you know, as a result of this, Dugan is free. And so on June 15th, 1984, Dugan, realizing that he got away with it, abducts a 27-year-old woman, rapes, and kills her. With impunity. Because the next thing on our timeline, several months later, February 22nd, 1985, Cruz and Hernandez are convicted of Janine's murder. And they're sentenced to death. Dugan is still free, and he continues to attack girls and women. Yeah, and I think that one of the big lessons here is that racism really kills Dugan's 27-year-old victim, uh, whose name is Donna, because as a result of the fact that uh, racism led them to this indictment of three innocent men, they were unable to find the pattern that was ultimately being expressed by Brian Dugan's crimes. So on June 2nd, 1985, Dugan kidnaps, rapes, and kills a seven-year-old girl by the name of Melissa. She was riding on her bike with a friend when Dugan drove up and grabbed her. As we see, Dugan is now acting more and more recklessly. His acts are becoming much more bold because after two killings, he is still free at this point. The friend, however, uh, was able to get away. Melissa was, was riding bikes with a friend, as we remember, and that friend was able to successfully get away, leading us to the next major point on the timeline. June 3rd, 1985. That's the next day. He's arrested. Dugan is finally arrested for an unrelated rape and as a suspect in Melissa's murder. So we know that he's he's been active. People are faint, like pointing the finger and saying, like, that's the guy who attacked me. Yeah. Then November 19th, 1985, Dugan pleads guilty to Melissa and Donna's murders. Gets two life sentences. He offers to plead in Janine's murder, but prosecutors turn down the offer. 
right? And we're going to get really into this the next episode when we talk about this because this is where we see that the state is implicit in this racist conviction of two Latino men uh, for a, a murder that occurs because this is Dugan saying, yo, I did it, right? Like this, yes. like this, this is him saying like, you guys got the wrong guy, right? But the state turns him down. He confesses to several other abductions, rapes, and attempted abductions of women and teens in the Chicago suburbs. But Cruz and Hernandez throughout this entire time remain in prison for crimes they did not commit. All right, so we skip ahead a little bit in time from 85 when Dugan pleads guilty to January 19th, 1989, about four years. Cruz and Hernandez's convictions are overturned on a technicality. The judge says that they should have been tried separately. So we see here that the wheels of justice move slowly and that Cruz and Hernandez and their attorneys have been appealing and, and trying to, uh, you know, get these innocent men free. So this is another slow crank on that wheel. Mm-hmm. Uh, in 1990, Cruz is convicted again and sentenced to death again. We get to 1991. Hernandez is also convicted again. 1995, the convictions are overturned again. Cruz is tried a third time, and this time he is acquitted. And charges against Hernandez or Hernandez are dropped 11 years after being indicted for Janine's murder. Now, this is where it gets exciting, mm-hmm. right? Because we're thinking like 95, like, okay, baseline justice might have been served. And we all feel really bad that like 11, it took 11 fucking years. In 1996, DuPage County law enforcement is accused of framing crews. And you get your hopes up. Yeah. But then but you then... remember that this is Chicago. And three years later, DuPage County law enforcement is found not guilty skipping ahead a little bit it's still 1999 but illinois as a whole suspends the death penalty george ryan who's the governor at the time he puts a moratorium on the death penalty and he specifically points to the rolando cruz case Mm -hmm. we all know rolando cruz didn't kill that girl but he was put on death row and he but for the persistence of attorneys, he would have been executed. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I mean, there was such a machine that was in motion trying to you know, just find someone guilty for this. And even when that machine was faced with evidence showing them that they were wrong, they would have rather put an innocent man to death than to question the machine. Because they knew that doing so would also create a ripple effect and it might upend a number of other convictions that occurred. Exactly. Bonus fact, Andrew Cocorales, one-third of the notorious Ripper crew active in Chicago also in the early 80s, was the last person to be executed by the state of Illinois. Yeah. In 2000, DuPage County Board settles lawsuits with Cruz, Hernandez, and Buckley for $3.5 million. Again, that that sounds like it's a lot of money, but when you remember the fact that it was in return for over a decade of wrongful imprisonment, that's a pretty paltry sum. Skipping a little bit further ahead, in 2005, Dugan, finally, 
is indicted for Janine's murder. This is 20 years after he told prosecutors that he killed her and 22 years after Janine died. In 2009, Dugan is found guilty and sentenced to death. However, that sentence is mostly ceremonial because, like Meredith said, there is a moratorium in the state of Illinois. So um, he will not be receiving the death penalty anytime too soon unless that moratorium is lifted. Well, actually, in 2011, Illinois abolished the death penalty. So it's not on the table anymore. Instead, Dugan's serving life in prison. And these are the types of cases that really... um, create a tension between knowing that the death penalty is unjust because of cases exactly like Cruz, Hernandez, Buckley, but also being faced with monsters like Dugan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that also uh, not necessarily, you know, enumerated by numbers here, but the experience of many Latinos who were discriminated against in the western suburbs as a result of this uh conviction because it was it was adding to a narrative that we still see today with trump that latinos are rapists and that latinos when they come to your neighborhood it is to commit crime and that narrative is one that has existed since time immemorial in racist america where it's always about protecting white women from the advances of colored men but as a result of this case uh which was really the manifestation of that fear into a legal conviction many latinos were seen as being the enemy and that their place in the suburbs was always going to be a destructive one yep this is a story about inequality and xenophobia and it's a powerful argument against the death penalty. Aurora was not a great place to be in the 80s when all of its jobs disappeared, but like we see today, the more affluent areas, Naperville and Lyle, they were sheltered from that economic storm, and it was so easy to conflate Aurora's population change with the crime that came from sudden economic distress. It was too easy to point to Latinos as criminals and to overlook Dugan as just another down-on-his-luck white guy in Aurora. It was certainly much too easy for Cruz and Hernandez to land on death row. Preach, Meredith. And we also see that not everything has changed. Aurora has the highest population of Hispanics or Latinos in Will County with over 86,000 Latinos. However, Naperville only has 8,000 and continues alongside Lyle to be predominantly white with non-Hispanic or Latino residents. So some things have changed, obviously, but other things still remain the same in Chicago. And Naperville and Lyle continue to be bastions of whiteness in our cultural landscape. And that segregation that, you know, started in the 80s with this massive immigration of Latino immigrants to the Chicagoland area has not really made any inroads in certain areas like Lyle, like Naperville. It's amazing how things that we think are a long time ago, like the 80s, it's 40 years ago. It's not that long. Things really haven't changed. There was like a new population and we can't seem to like fucking figure it out. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) 
Well, thank you all for listening to this episode. Uh, Meredith and I tried to lay out the broad strokes of this conversation. In our next episode, we're going to be going more in-depth about the convictions that occurred and also our interview with Brian Dugan in Statesville. And we're able to interview Dugan where he was able to give us his own account of his crimes, his past, and also how he views his incarceration. Spoiler alert, uh, Brian Dugan knows what white privilege is, um, and we'll be going into that a little bit more in our next episode. All right, so thank you, everyone. Thanks for listening. Murderland Chicago, A Deep Dish of Death, was created and produced by us, Jonathan Sanchez-Lives and Meredith Halsey. Our theme music is The Original Chicago Blues, which was composed by James White in 1915 and performed by Katerina Storchius in 2021. Artwork is by Laura Gosdell. Special thanks to everyone who helped make this season possible, including the friends and family who listened, gave constructive feedback, and offered advice and pointers on recording and editing. And thank you for listening. If you'd like to hear more from us, subscribe to Murderland Chicago, a deep dish of death on your podcast app. Follow us on Patreon at Murderland Chicago. And find us on Instagram at Deep Dish of Death. Throughout the making of this podcast, we did quite a bit of research to ensure that the information we are sharing is accurate, but we know that sometimes information sources contain errors, and we accept that, in conversation, we may have introduced errors to the stories. To that point, this podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Please send any comments, suggestions, or correction of errors to us at deepdishofdeath at gmail.com.